G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Uh, This year is the centenary of those major breakthroughs in 1918 that brought World War I to an end. So on the 11th of November that's coming up, really just a few weeks away, of course there's going to be some major commemorations because it'll be a significant centenary. Well, there were some great Australians who were instrumental in taking the world from war to peace. So worthy of us taking some time to reflect to appreciate and to understand our own Australian history and what contribution has been made into such significant things as world wars. We'll no doubt be talking today about some of the personalities and some of those names come up with frequency, but wonderful to be reminded of just the huge, uh, the huge... uh, uh, contribution that these identities have made. People like uh, Sir John Monash and Sir Harry Chauvel. Uh, what is hugely significant is how General Sir Harry Chauvel and the Anzac Light Horse created the conditions for the re-establishment of the modern state of Israel. So it deepens, doesn't it, uh, into what we will understand as not only a incredible global contribution when it comes to uh, the outcomes of the Great War, World War One, but also uh, in how we understand fulfilment of biblical prophecy. Uh, those things are very significant, and we're going to talk about these things, and perhaps there'll be a lot of uh, difference uh, in the way that we uh, we talk about difference uh, in the sense of uh, so many different uh, dimensions to talk about. Let's welcome Peter Kentley, who is Director of Recharge 100, and the organiser of what will be a significant centenary ceremony commemorating the Anzac Light Horse victory in biblical Israel back in 1918. He's a former airline captain, a former CEO of the Christian Federation, and he's joining us for this conversation. Peter Kentley, a special welcome back to 2020. Neil, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Peter, you're just recently back from the Middle East. You've been doing all sorts of things. Uh, Give us a little recount on on your most recent travels. Well, two, actually. Last year, 12 months ago, I was in Besheva with the Australian Light Horse, where we had the centenary of the Australian Light Horse charge and the liberation of Besheva. Uh, Prime Minister Turnbull, as he was then, and Netanyahu were there, and a whole tribe, thousands of Australians and New Zealanders uh, marching through the streets of of Besheva to remember what a wonderful occasion that was 100 years years ago on the 31st of October last year. And then again this year I've just returned from Israel for the centenary of the Light Horse Breakthrough uh, from going north from Jaffa, uh, what we now call Tel Aviv, through the Megiddo Pass into the Jezreel Valley and also, uh, amazingly, how God used Australians to liberate the area of the Sea of Galilee, which in 1918 and for 400 years before that was under the occupation of the Ottomans. 
and uh, in 25th of September uh, 1918, Sir Harry Chevelle and the Australians uh, liberated the station at Samark, just at uh, the bottom of Galilee, then Tiberias, and the whole of the whole of the area of Galilee, which we read so often in our Bibles, was uh, liberated from Ottoman oppression by Australians in uh, in 1918, and we were. Uh, so blessed to be able to run a commemoration service at the railway station where the battle took place in Samak on the 25th of September 1918 for the original battle and, of course, 2018 for the centenary. And undoubtedly we might talk some more about that, but if we're getting context here, uh, because we all know so much about Gallipoli and uh, the wonderful heroes, those Anzacs, uh, who went ashore at Gallipoli and, of course, uh, you know, one of those great defeats. And that's why our Australian uh, diggers were such national heroes. Uh, beyond Gallipoli, though, and sometimes our, our understanding of World War One somehow uh, gets intensified around Gallipoli, but, of course, once Gallipoli's campaign was finished... Uh, we had forces, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I'm just reflecting, generally speaking here, Peter. You had a, a set of of our ANZAC forces that went off to Egypt and uh, into the Middle East, and, of course, that campaign around uh, Beersheba and uh, the liberation of Jerusalem, that was to follow. Then you had another set of our diggers uh, going north uh, to the Western Front, uh, so you've got these two major directions, and uh, we'll talk about some of those today because some of the personalities involved in this, some of those war heroes, Australian war heroes, uh, were involved in both of these campaigns. What are your reflections about just getting the context right? Yes, well, you've, um, you've spoken about that time correctly, Neil. Thank you very much. Uh, the Australian light horse... Uh, had gone from Egypt to Gallipoli, naturally without the horses. The horses remained in Egypt. And then after the evacuation of Gallipoli, they, the, they went back to Egypt. And as you said, some went north to France and uh, fought in, uh, on the Western Front. And uh, a new huge number uh, went south or stayed in Egypt because after Gallipoli, the Turks and the Germans or the Ottomans had a plan to try and capture the Suez Canal in uh, late 1915, early 1916, and they came down uh, through Israel, or of course it was called Palestine in those days, uh, to try and take the Suez Canal. And uh, General Sir Harry Chevelle, who came from Tabulan in New South Wales, he went to Sydney Grammar. Now he went to Toowoomba Grammar in primary school. He went to Sydney Grammar in secondary schooling. And then after World War One, he lived the rest of his life in Melbourne. And uh, but Sir Harry was um, placed in charge of what became the Desert Corps, and they found that the horses, which uh, were known as whalers because they came from New South Wales, were so uh, adept in the desert that they uh, led the, the defence of Egypt and the Suez Canal from a town called Rimini. Just um, to the east of the Suez Canal and were successful in driving the Turks, the Ottomans, the Germans back to Gaza. That was General Harry Chevelle considered that one of his greatest victories. And uh, as we can talk a little later, were, it was successful then in liberating the whole of the land of pa Palestine, which had been 
And Ottoman uh, occupation for 400 years had been under Muslim occupation for 1,300 years. And the prophecies for the fulfilment um, of the liberation of Palestine and the reinstatement of the nation of Israel and the Jews to return to Israel, the conditions, as you said earlier, were made possible by those victories in Rimini, Besheva, Jaffa, uh, Samar, and the Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley, Nazareth, and uh, finally Damascus and then Aleppo. So the, the battles of 19, late 97 and early 19 were fantastic, and whereas we had been defeated in Gallipoli, we had unending success in Palestine. Well, I want to invite listeners to join in our conversation very shortly. We're going to open our talkback lines. Uh, you might have your own ancestry that goes back to the Great War, World War One, nineteen fourteen to 1918. Uh, love to hear from you today if you've got some sort of connection there because... Uh, I guess, is it too long a bow to draw when we talk about our Anzacs, uh, Peter, to say that our Anzacs, uh, particularly those uh, in the Middle Eastern uh, battles, really were a part of what we can certainly draw a correlation and say, you know, biblical prophecy being fulfilled, and it may be that our own ancestors were such a significant part of a fulfilment of Bible prophecy. Your thoughts, Peter? Well, that's true, of course. We mustn't just uh, uh, isolate it to Australians and New Zealanders, the Anzacs. Of course, the, the British had sent, to defend the Suez Canal, they sent 80,000 troops from England to, uh, to Egypt. So it's very, very significant. But um, the Australians were at the forefront, the Australians or the Anzacs, Australians and New Zealanders, were at the forefront of the battles in Rimini, in Besheva, um, and certainly uh, at Samark and uh, in the Jezreel Valley. In fact, um, Australia sent... This is an amazing number, Neil. I wonder how many light, how many horses, whalers, do you think Australia sent to Egypt in, um, in World War I? The number is around approximately 130,000. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Can you imagine the logistics of sending 130,000 horses to Egypt? to fight those battles. That's right, so, it was huge, and uh, yes, the number of soldiers uh, was huge. Yes, and uh, and of course, in the, as I said, in the battles, uh, the liberating um, Galilee, the area of Galilee and uh, Tiberias was led by uh, by Aussies, so it was, uh, it was just a fantastic um, occurrence and a fantastic opportunity that Australia, somehow, the Lord got chose Australians and New Zealanders to be right at the forefront of uh, returning um, Palestine to the nation of Israel. Peter, no doubt the RSL will be giving a major, major focus to the centenary coming up uh, November 11th. Uh, we're also talking about a date just uh, a week out, uh, the 31st of October. Uh, but uh, the significance of the centenary, of the end of World War One, and this special event that you have planned, uh, you've got a, a lineup, a who's who lineup, uh, to be speakers at a centenary remembrance event that you're hosting at Scotch College in Melbourne. Give us a little outline of what you've got planned. Yes, um, thank you very much for that, Neil. Yes, on the afternoon, 2.15pm in Melbourne at Scotch College, we have some orations, about 15-minute orations, one by the very well-known and highly regarded author, Roland Perry, OAM, uh, author and historian, who will be speaking on why the, the, the 
stories of Monash and Chevelle need to be told. And then uh, because, of course, Monash uh, was Jewish, as in fact my father was Jewish, and, and I might mention here that I have a particular interest in this because all of my father's family died in the ovens at Auschwitz in 1942. Mm. Of course, that was World War II, not World War I, but um, I do have such a personal interest in, uh, in Israel and in, uh, in the Jewish contribution to history. And uh, Professor Je Major General Professor Jeffrey Rosenfeld, uh, one of the foremost and one of the most uh, well-written um, medical professors in Melbourne and a Major General in the Armed Forces, he will be speaking on the story of John Monash. And then uh, Neville Clark, OAM, uh, MC, who was formerly the principal of Mentone Grammar School, uh, a military man, has an amazing memory and a wonderful uh, way of being able to convey the drama um, of the Harry Chevelle story and the Australian Light Horse in, in Palestine. And then we have uh, Dr Esme Bamblett from the Aboriginal Advancement League who will speak uh, about Indigenous troopers in World War I. And also we will want to actually offer an apology in a sense too because the Indigenous troopers were so disregarded and disrespectfully treated when they came back to Australia at the end of World War I having, having risked their lives and some of them died in the Black Watch in Palestine so we owe them a, a great debt of gratitude as well so it'll be a wonderful day and we will also have a significant choir and some musical items uh, in the in the genre of uh, World War One. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson a biblical perspective on life culture and current events well an interesting and engaging conversation about our Australian historic war heroes and particularly as we reflect on the great war world war one 1914 to 1918 the centenary coming up on the 11th of November of course other significant anniversaries the 31st of October too our special guest is Peter Kentley director of recharge 100 uh, Peter let me just bring you back for a moment uh, to uh, this idea of a apology because apologies are very firmly in our minds uh, having heard the Prime Minister deliver a national apology uh, for institutional abuse this week uh, the idea of having an apology to Indigenous troopers uh, this is very significant is this something that you're aware has happened uh, before or is it something that is growing in momentum what are you, what's, uh, what's, uh, what's the deal with that? Um, I'm not actually aware of any public apology uh, to do with Indigenous troopers in World War One, but over the last two years I've had many, many contacts with families of Indigenous troopers. And just to recap on why it's good for us to uh, apologise, the first one was at the end of the Boer War, for there were volunteer Indigenous troopers who went to the Boer War and the Australian government wouldn't pay the return uh, fare for them on the ship for them to come back to Australia at the end of the Boer War, and then in uh, in World War One, they were Aboriginal people were not considered uh, suitable candidates to be soldiers in World War One until the casualties got up and they needed more volunteers, and then especially from New South Wales and Queensland, uh, Indigenous. Uh, uh, men did volunteer to be uh, troopers and soldiers uh, 
in uh, in World War One, and both in the Western Front and in the Palestine Front, and uh, and they were accepted. And when they got over there, they were, they formed a troop in the in Palestine called the Black Watch, and they were accepted uh, and treated, I think, fa- fairly and equitably in Palestine. But when they came home to Australia, um, they weren't recognised and they didn't get any of the benefits. So whereas other soldiers had soldier settlements and other government uh, resources to help them resettle in Australia after they had come home from uh, some of the battles in Palestine and the Western Front, the Indigenous or Aboriginal troopers who had fought and volunteers for our nation came home were not given any of those benefits. And I think that kind of injustice is something that uh, we feel in our hearts and we're so sorry that the culture uh, in that time uh, was distorted in that way. And may I say, as a Christian, you know, we should have the attitude that all of us are made in the image of God, whether we are Aboriginal, Indigenous or some other some other migration from another nation or a different skill color, skin colour, whether brown, black, yellow or white uh, or any variations therein that we're all made in the image of God and for these brothers, these volunteers who voluntarily went to fight for our nation in the Great War to come home and not be treated equally with the other soldiers was just a terrible injustice which uh, I just personally uh, look forward to that opportunity to publicly express that apology on the 11th of November. Well, it seems to me that I think it's much more a widely anticipated uh, issue to be excited about uh, than perhaps what you had planned even as a localised event for Melbourne because the idea of those uh, Indigenous troopers, heroes in the Middle East and on the Western Front, but on their return to Australia, treated almost as subhuman and the idea of an apology and a particularly coming from, uh, as you say, when we talk about a Christian foundation of how that ought to look, that's a very, very powerful thing. And uh, and I wonder whether, uh, uh, you know, I, I, as I say, did this has this happened uh, more often but uh, you know perhaps you're uh, you're stumbling onto something that needs to have some more momentum what would your hope be that it might gain in some momentum even to a level of national significance peter well we hope it'll it'll become something of increasing awareness and I, to me the why do you say an apology because you want to express emotionally um, a recognition of an injustice and to be able to look a brother or a sister in the eye and say, we love you and and we value you and we appreciate you and we're so sorry that that our ancestors mistreated your ancestors, misjudged you in that way and it's something that shouldn't happen. So it's just an opportunity, isn't it, to relate to people and to turn it from an injustice to affection, to love, to respect, to honour. And recognising too, in context, it'll be one element of your commemoration. But if we just reflect on this a little more, I mean, uh, what sort of what, what do you anticipate it might look like on the day when you actually have uh, this apology? Because you mentioned you've got Dr. Esme Bamblett. Uh, who'll be in attendance, and uh, you've got these other uh, eminent uh, people and uh, historians, uh, wonderful people who you'll have speaking on the day. Uh, what's do you uh, just uh, envisage for us for a moment? What you think it might look like when you do this apology? 
Well, I won't go into it too much other than to say that Esme and I have had a conversation about it so that we can both uh, offer an apology and an acceptance of an apology so can, we can close the loop in that sense. Um, but, I, but I also want to um, extend that also to Jewish people because there's been you know, such a history of anti-Semitism and uh, John Monash, perhaps Australia's greatest hero, was a Jew. And yet he was uh, undoubtedly, or people like uh, General Montgomery, World War II, considered General Monash, World War I, to be the greatest general of World War I. And he was this, this great man, uh, this Jewish leader of our nation, who unquestionably had such skills and abilities that he brought the World War I to an end uh, probably 12 months earlier than otherwise would have happened. Now, we're probably talking about the saving of another million lives of soldiers whose lives were saved because of the abilities, the expertise of this wonderful man from Melbourne, General Sir John Monash. He actually was an old Scotch boy. He was a co-dux of his year when he left Scotch. Um, he has such a, a broad history of, of wonderful leadership in engineering, uh, in the law... Um, in in the military, and yet he even to this day there is still some anti-Semitic feeling against John Monash. So I also, my father being Jewish, I also feel that we want to offer an apology to Jewish people when they have been so mistreated, and and I want to I want that to be a, a factor in our event on the 11th of November. When we talk about these names, Harry Chavel, uh, John Monash, and as I understand it, while Harry Chavel was very firmly a devout uh, Christian believer, uh, John Monash not quite uh, so connected there, but as you talk about his heritage, clearly a uh, certainly a Judeo heritage there, which would have shaped him. Uh, when we talk about these great war heroes, uh, sometimes we discuss and lament the idea that we don't remember our Australian heroes the way we ought to. Uh, these are a couple of uh, names that ought to be uh, admired and talked about at every opportunity, Peter. Yes, um, I, I particularly want to have this opportunity to raise the, the knowledge and understanding of General Sir Harry Chevelle because there's been a massive amount of uh, coverage of John Monash this year. You might remember that on Anzac Day this year, the 25th of April, the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull opened the Monash Centre at uh, Villas Bretonneux in France. And uh, there's been a, a big move on to uh, elevate him to Field Marshal. In fact, there is a, a bill in the Federal Parliament being discussed at this time to that level. So there has been um, a very great uh, coverage of Sir John Monash in the Australian newspaper and many other of parts of the media, but hardly any coverage of of Sir Harry Chevelle of the Australian Light Horse um, in uh, in Palestine, especially in 1918. You know, um, Sir Harry led in on the 25th of uh, September 1918. Sir Harry led 34,000 mounted troopers through the Megiddo Pass into the Jezreel Valley, which of course, biblically, that's known as Armageddon. Of course, that, this in 1918 was not Armageddon, but it was a, a foretaste of what the Bible prophesies will happen. But can you imagine that this man, this, ma this major, uh, this wonderful general from Australia, um, 
led 34,000 mounted troopers through the Megiddo Pass into the Jezreel Valley, uh, captured Nazareth, our, our Lord's town, uh, kept and then uh, defeated three Turkish armies, took 75,000 prisoners of war, captured Damascus, and then went north to Aleppo, and then on the 31st or the 30th of October 1918, the war, World War One was over in uh, Palestine, and only a few weeks later, the 11th of uh, November 1918, the war was over in the Western Front. So here were these two great Australians, Sir John Monash in France and Sir Harry Chevelle in Palestine, whose such brilliance and ability and leadership were so significant in taking the war, the world from war uh, to peace in 19, 1918 and perhaps saving a million lives if the war had have gone on otherwise. Peter, we're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Just a few minutes out from news, let's take a call from Darren in Adelaide. Hello, Darren. Welcome along. Oh, hello. Yes. Darren, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, actually, yeah, I'm quite passionate about um, Australia's, like, contribution, um, you know, with the light horsemen. Um, I think it's, you know, absolutely amazing that God's used Australia as a stepping, you know, for um, the state of uh, Israel to be established. And, um, yeah, I was actually really read a... Uh, well, there's actually a really good book, book that I actually read. It was by um, Cole Stringer, and he's actually on the, on the 800 Light Horsemen. And, uh, yeah, it really inspired me to, um, you know, just take a keen interest in um, our contribution, I guess, Darren, good thoughts there, and uh, certainly Cole Stringer and that book about the 800 horsemen, uh, certainly a significant contribution, I think, to our understanding of the value of uh, the light horse. Your thoughts, Peter, for Darren in Adelaide? Yes, well, there's terrific books available, and I do thank Cole Stringer for his passion and his great storytelling ability, um, both in his literature and in his preaching and teaching around the nation. What a great man Cole is. Um, also, uh, Roland Perry uh, released a, a wonderful book, if anyone read it or recommended if you haven't, which was, I read it last January, which is a parallel account of Sir John Monash and Sir Harry Chevelle, the two, the two generals, um, story told in parallel through the one book. So I think it's called Monash and Chevelle by Roland Perry. It's another fantastic story, easy, an easy read, and uh, that's another great story to read how those two generals functioned in the in the same period of time together different locations peter let me just come to this idea of israel being front and center in so many of the affairs of global politics and really as a uh, a significant center of biblical prophecy because uh, biblical prophecy is one of those things that, you know, for some people they say, oh, I don't know, I understand all of that sort of stuff and I'm really doubtful as to whether I should uh, actually uh, gra grasp a hold of that and uh, claim that as my uh, a point of understanding. But biblical prophecy is so, so significant when it comes to the state of Israel and also uh, the, the fact that it is there in the first place. But there's this idea of two-state solutions. There's the tensions that go on between the Palestinians and the Israelis. There's divided opinion around the world. Uh, there's most of the world ganging up on the state of Israel. 
But this pursuit of a two-state solution, uh, you've got some thoughts on a biblical way of looking at what is ahead and even to the point of a three-state solution. Perhaps uh, share a few of your thoughts with us. Well, Neil, thank you very much and uh, it's great to be here this morning with you. In uh, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 23, we have a wonderful prophecy. It comes up more than once in Isaiah, which talks about the highway of holiness. And the prophecy for the future, which this is my personal view and my hope and where I, where I think the Bible is pointing us, if I could just read it uh, shortly, it says, In that day, and whenever the scripture uses the words in that day, the prophecy is speaking about the return of Christ. And uh, may I also say, in my most recent time in Israel, I was there for three weeks only a fortnight ago, the topic of conversation that kept on coming up all the time was the return of Christ, or of course, if you're Jewish, the arrival of the Messiah. And secondly, that uh, the passage from Ephesians chapter 2, that in Christ we are neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are one new man in Christ. And in a in a, a blood sense, I, I have a certain uh, direct connection with that because my father was Jewish and my mother was Gentile, and so uh, I consider myself to be one new man in Christ, both by by birth and also by spiritual birth. But just coming back to this passage in Isaiah 19, the Scripture says, verse chapter 19, verse 23, in that day, Egypt and Assy- and Assyria will be connected by a highway. The Egyptians and Assyrians will move freely between their lands and they will both worship God. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. For the Lord of heaven's armies will say, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, the land I have made. Blessed be Israel, my special possession. So I think if we want to look to the future with the lens of scripture and the lens of prophecy, especially this wonderful prophecy of the prophet Isaiah, we're not looking at a two-state solution. We're looking at a three-state solution with the return of Christ, with Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and God's love being extended from Egypt through Israel and through Assyria and there being a highway of holiness between those three countries. Now, I'm an absolutely firm, committed believer in the Scripture and in prophecy, and so I would say, for me, absolutely, it'll be a three-state solution, as the prophet Isaiah has spoken. Okay, well, our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation today, or you can leave a note on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Guy rang in but didn't want to chat on air, said that many Aussies died during the Battle of Pozier in France in World War I. Uh, Michael Lee is currently raising funds to rebuild the 16th century windmill that is close to the battle site. Now it was the high point that the Aussies were commanded to take but when they arrived the windmill had already been destroyed and many diggers died there. The goal of the project is to rebuild the windmill 
and complete a memorial to those Allied troops, including the Aussies who fell during the battle. Now, there is uh, a way you can, uh, I imagine, uh, Google. Uh, you can uh, check that out at Anzac Portal and uh, be part of that. But uh, drawing attention to the fact that there are many projects like that that continue on and perhaps will come to the forefront in this centenary year, Peter, of people who are remembering some of these great battles remembering the Aussies who fell on the battlefield and uh, these sorts of uh, memorials and uh, these sorts of uh, commemorations are very much an important part of what has to happen in a year like this. Yes, Neil, and uh, I mentioned a few moments ago or before the news, uh, the new Australian uh, centre, the John Monash Centre at Villas Bretonneux in France, which is a fabulous um, resource that the government, I think they spent $100 million on developing that historic history, that connection with history there. And any of our listeners do encourage you to uh, just Google look, Google um, the John Monash Centre in Villas Bretonneux in France. And also when I was in Israel 31st of October last year, 1917, with the centenary of the uh, ANZA, the Australian Lighthouse Charge on Besheva, the Australian government also opened the Australian Museum at Besheva and um, last month I was there and had the opportunity to spend a few hours at the Australian Museum there so that's another wonderful opportunity and I do hope our listeners uh, if they haven't already done so will go and visit Israel and uh, visit Besheva, visit the Australian Light Horse uh, Museum in Besheva and also the Pratt family and uh, have developed the the park of the Australian Light Horse with a wonderful statue there and the story of the Light Horse in the Australian Park of the Light Horse at Besheva. And, of course, not to forget, you can see Abraham's Well, the, the story of Abraham's Well or Wells at Besheva. So there are some fantastic uh, museums that have been opened and uh, are being opened and, and good on the redevelopment of this windmill for Pozniers. That's wonderful, another wonderful story that helps us to remember our heritage, our Judeo-Christian heritage as a nation. Peter, I don't want to miss the opportunity in this conversation to get your thoughts on our Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his opening the door uh, to the possibility that Australia's embassy could move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem because as we're talking about uh, our Australian light horse and the liberation of Beersheba uh, and the liberation of Jerusalem, uh, we've got a direct connection in here and there is a sense, isn't there, and I'll get your thoughts, uh, that given the Australian contribution to the liberation of Jerusalem and setting the course then for the eventual re-establishment of the state of Israel, uh, Jerusalem being the important city in there, uh, that somehow or other it would be a natural thing, wouldn't it, for our Australian Prime Minister to recognise uh, the city of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? What are your thoughts on these developments of the last week or so? Well, any student of the Bible would know that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel going back over 4,000 years. In fact, going back to Abraham when he sacrificed, or I should really say bound, his son uh, Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is now geographically at or very close to Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So there is uh, this historic... Um, linkage and line that goes from Abraham through David through Solomon uh, right up to the time of Christ um, AD, then of course it was 
the the Jews lost the land in AD 70 when Titus invaded, the Roman Titus invaded in AD 70, um, and then leading right up to the fulfilment of prophecy with uh, Australians at the forefront with the, the Brits and the New Zealanders in the liberation of, um, of Jerusalem on the 11th of December 1917, and then the, the Australians liberating Galilee on the 25th of September 1918, and the, then there's a mentioned earlier General Harry Chevelle and 34,000 uh, light horse liberating the Jezreel Valley and Nazareth. So our, our nation, Australia, has uh, such an amazing and special relationship with Israel, and uh, there is such a clear evidence that Jerusalem is the historic and eternal capital of uh, of of Israel. So I would 100% support uh, General, sorry, not General, uh, Prime Minister Morrison's um, movement towards the Australian Embassy being located in Jerusalem. Interesting that we're talking 100 years since that liberation and Israel still commanding so much of the global headline limelight when it comes to the controversial space uh, that Jerusalem is in. In one sense here, when we talk about our Australian contribution to the liberation of Jerusalem, and as you uh, rightly reflect, a 3,000-year history of Jerusalem being the capital for the Jewish nation, but uh, no bit, no greater way to honour the work of our Anzacs uh, than to actually recognise Jerusalem as the capital. Uh, that certainly is a connection and uh, certainly would be something that, you know, I think in logical hindsight uh, would be an honour to our Anzac soldiers. Yes, it would uh, be f- fabulous and a great honour to our, to our Judeo-Christian background and the stories that we've shared this morning. Uh, There's also this thought too, Peter, that given that it is still a contested uh, region, I mean, everybody wants uh, the land of Israel, everybody wants uh, Jerusalem to make it their capital, Uh, there is a certain sense here in which uh, the enemies of Israel... Uh, they perhaps are still uh, in this battle for Jerusalem and uh, even though Jerusalem was liberated a hundred years ago the battle still continues and in some sense uh, the idea of staring down those opponents of the state of Israel uh, that's going to be a major uh, issue that even our Prime Minister will need to deal with. Well if we go back to the British mandate um, as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stated at Besheva on the 31st of October 19, um, sorry, 2017 that uh, the conditions were met, um, the conditions were created with uh, the Australian Light Horse in 1970-1918 for the liberation of the land from the Ottomans and the re-establishment of the modern state of Israel. Now it just so happened, amazingly, that on the day of the Australian Light Horse Charge on Besheva, the 31st of October, 1917, on the same day, at the same hour, the Balfour Agreement was passed by the British War Cabinet in London. So those two events happened on the same day, at the same hour, 4pm on the 31st of October, 1917. Then we, it took from 1918 to 1948, another 30 years, including World War Two and including the Holocaust, before the world came to the condition, to the position of of uh, passing the 
the uh, arrangements that Israel would be re-established and then of course immediately Israel was attacked by all its neighbours but it won that war in, in 1948 and there's been a, over, over 10 wars uh, since 1948 but one way or another and I would say miraculously the state of Israel has continued. Now if we go back to the British mandate between 1918 and 1948 with the settlement of the British mandate there was a separation of the land that Israel would go to the Jews and Jordan would go to the Palestinians or to the Arabs and uh, the Arabs got 77% of the land and the Jews got 23% so the map was drawn at the end of the British mandate that the that Jerusalem, sorry, Israel with Jerusalem's capital would be Jewish and Jordan would be Arab. That was a clear geographic uh, settlement of the British mandate uh, in 1948. So that is continually being contested. But nevertheless, there is a clear historic evidence of, the, of Israel, of Jerusalem being the capital of Israel, right back through to David and even going back, as I mentioned before, to Abraham in the sense of the covenant relationship between God and Abraham occurring on Mount Moriah, which is in the centre of Jerusalem now. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Wonderful to have you along with us as we've been talking about some of our national Australian military heroes. Peter Kentley, our guest, Director of Recharge 100 and planning a a significant commemoration that'll happen on the 11th of November at Scotch College in Melbourne and uh, a lineup of fabulous speakers and even an apology to Indigenous troopers to happen on that day. As we talk about the significance of the Great War, World War One, I want to be able to perhaps end on a, a note here that links some of the significance of the two great wars we're talking about, World War One and World War Two, because we know that in the liberation of Jerusalem, uh, there was certainly no end to the challenge and the struggle for the Jewish people because that continued on, and uh, we saw the culmination of that, of course, in the most tragic of events, the Holocaust in World War Two. You've got special connection here, Peter Kentley, and as we're talking about heroes from World War One and connection to this other uh, dreadful war, World War Two, uh, just uh, repeat a little uh, for us for, of your family history to uh, to link these significant events together well thanks Neil yes uh, my father was uh, Jewish was born born in uh, Slovakia which was then part of Czechoslovakia his parents died in the Spanish flu and then he uh, grew up in Budapest as a Jew and then 1937 uh, decided to get out of Europe because Europe was no place for a Jew under Hitler and migrated to Australia, met my mum and got married, and I'm a product of a Jew and a Gentile, one new man in Christ. Um, and then at the end of uh, World War II, my father received a telegram to say that all of his family from Bratislava had been rounded up by the Nazis in 1942, taken to Auschwitz in Poland, and all of them except for one had died in the gas ovens in the camp in Auschwitz. And so uh, last year as I was travelling back to Jerusalem for the centenary of Besheva and uh, when I got to Hong Kong the airline said that uh, they couldn't give me my assigned seat 
So I just accepted what they had for me and I got on board the aircraft to go from Hong Kong to Tel Aviv and I was in uh, the premium economy cabin and the Jewish family were just settling into the seats which I couldn't occupy because they had a baby with a bassinet on the bulkhead in that seat. And the Jewish dad uh, came up to me and said, oh, what's your name? And I said, Peter. And he said, well, look, I'm actually uh, meant to be in that business class seat on the other side of the bulkhead, but I prefer to sit back here with my family in premium economy. Would you mind swapping with me? Would you mind taking my business class seat? So uh, I accepted. Uh, I did ask him two or three times whether he's sure. He said yes, and the flight attendants didn't have any objection. So I flew from Hong Kong to Tel Aviv in uh, business class, uh, free free of charge as a courtesy of this Jewish father. And so as I travelled on that sector, I was reflecting how my family on my father's side travelled from Bratislava to Auschwitz in cattle cars during World War Two, and 17,000 Jewish people died in cattle cars. The lack of food, the lack of oxygen, the lack of water, 17,000 Jewish people, mums and dads, little kids, just died in horrific conditions uh, in cattle cars. And here, 75 years later, I'm travelling back to Israel to commemorate the Australian liberation of Besheva, and a Jewish dad gives me a business class seat to fly from Hong Kong to Tel Aviv to remember this event in World War One. So uh, wasn't that a, uh, a an amazing reflection and, and how we have traversed history from cattle cars and the murder of six million Jews in Germany to going back to Israel uh, where Australians have played and New Zealanders have played such a significant role in the re-establishment of the modern state of Israel. Peter, it is a reminder of the brutality of World War One and then progressing into World War Two. And for those events that have led to what is now, as you look at it, a peaceful uh, state of Israel. And, uh, of course, uh, there's conflict that is threatening Israel all the time. It's also a reminder that those brutal events of World War One, World War Two, uh, these are not far from us today. And we ought not to just be relaxed about the memories of those, but vigilant uh, so that we can maintain a level of peacefulness and freedom here in Australia. I certainly appreciate your insights today and those special reflections on some of our greatest uh, war heroes, the likes of Sir John Monash, the likes of Sir Harry Chauvel in the Middle East. Uh, these are wonderful stories to tell. I'll point people to the Recharge event that is on in Melbourne coming up on the 11th of November. No doubt you can uh, reserve a place to be a part of that. It's at Scotch College. It'll be at 2.15 in the afternoon on that day. And I think it's a Sunday, isn't it, Pete? Uh, but, yeah, it's uh, a Sunday afternoon and people can register at the uh, at the event on the day. Okay, centenary of Remembrance Day and no doubt RSLs around the nation will be doing some special events and a good time in the lead up to that to be making a plan as to how we might all be participating in some of those events. Peter Kentley, Director of Recharge, thanks so much for being with us once again today on 2020. It's a pleasure, Neil. Goodbye. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. 
Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.